Well, hey, and welcome back to the Will and Rob show. I get to do the introductions this week. Robert took over and did a fine job last week. So I've had a, a whole two weeks to prepare to see if maybe I can get back in the swing of things and try again. So welcome into the Will and Rob show. My name is Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State, uh, here as always with my very good friend and colleague, Robert Hasser, also Associate uh, ministry associate with Ministry of State, Comms Director as well. Uh, ministry of State is a ministry of the PCA here in Washington, D.C., where we seek to pastor and disciple men and women, work, men and women working on the Hill. And so uh, we get to do this as part of our job, which is pretty fun. We get to come on here weekly and talk about um, anything from books to current events to uh, politics and life on the Hill. I have some pretty fun guests, so we're glad to be here with you. But before we get into today's or this week's topic, kick it over to you, Mr. Hassler, and just ask you how you're doing. Dude, you killed that intro, man. What? That was you think awesome. I did it? You nailed it. Wow. Okay, I've been practicing. I was. I didn't even, yeah, I just memorized it. I don't have a script or anything. I just. You know, you did something that we just always fail to do, which is to explain what, what ministry to state is, like the organization we work for and who actually pays us to do this podcast. So that's really mm. nice to make sure that we give them some, some love on the podcast because- it, because of them, we couldn't do this thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. I mean, Chuck must have been, he's a very patient man. So I'm sure that he's relieved now that we're finally uh, acknowledging. He's sitting there going, it only took them 97 episodes, but they finally got it. <laughs> Bless you, Chuck. Um, thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Chuck, if you're listening. Um, yeah, dude, things are good, man. The weather is just absolutely gorgeous out here in uh, Virginia. Um, I'm sure it is the same up in DC, nice and sunny and and kind of starting to warm up. Uh, springtime is, is on the horizon, which is nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good. I'm in the middle of seminary, obviously, in in my semester, uh, but, uh, I'm really happy with the semester so far because I've had some great reading. In fact, I'm reading right now, the letters of Francis Schaeffer, uh, which I've always known about Francis Schaeffer, uh, being a Presbyterian, and I know how much of an influence he was, particularly, I think, on like our parents' generation. Um, but I've never really read any Schaefer. And I know he's got like big books, like True Spirituality and other things like that. Uh, but my first introduction to him is through his letters, which are incredibly pastoral and just kind of moving in, in the way that he cares for effectively random strangers who write to him with all these hard questions. Um, and so it's just kind of a, it's been a cool experience to kind of read Schaefer and kind of get to know him this way instead of sort of as the theologian cultural critic Schaefer. How much Schaefer have you read in your day? You want the honest answer? Is it none? It's zero. It's zero. <laughs> but you know Schaefer, you're familiar with Schaefer. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. <laughs> Name yeah. sounds familiar. So I went after high school, I took a year off and studied in England for a year at a Bible college, Bible school called Cape and Ray. That's, um, wasn't modeled on Labrie. I think it may have actually been founded maybe before Labrie uh, or around the same time. But it, um, but I heard like because of being a Caper, I first heard about Labrie and my parents obviously heard about it, but for some reason they never mentioned it. But I, I heard about Francis Schaefer from, from them. Cool. Yeah. I know. I noticed that on Amazon Prime, they have his um, How Then Shall We Live, uh, which I think I may have to kind of dig in it 
but I was I was kind of struck. I didn't realize Francis Schaeffer was such a uh, a eclectic dresser. Oh uh, boy, man, he's got some serious style. <laughs> Those he he really he really leaned in to being <laughs> in the Swiss Alps there with his style. Those socks. He's like pants. Nah, I'm out. Just give me some tall socks and I'll be fine. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. But anyways, we won't, we won't hold that against him. We won't uh, begrudge him or, or besmirch his fashion style. Definitely Although not. there is something refreshing in that kind of, you know, uh, lack of, of fashionisto sense, but regardless, that's not why we're here. I, I feel like I have to say that constantly, Robert, just to remind people, Hey, we're, we're wait, this a- isn't a Francis Schaefer fashion podcast, man, but that sounds really good. I don't know. You know <laughs> we should bring on the new pastor McLean Prez is getting his PhD on Francis Schaefer. And I wonder if he's done any deep dives into, uh, into the, the goodwill where Francis Schaefer must've purchased his clothes. That'd be a good, that's a good question. That, mm-hmm. that, that would, that should be a whole chapter in a, in a Schaefer book is just about, why did he start dressing that way? Mm-hmm. But we'll leave that to him. We'll leave we that. To the we can leave that aside to the experts. You know, we're just novitiates here. Um, but we we want to talk about a couple of things as we record this. It is Ash Wednesday, and as uh, Reformed Presbyterians, we have something of an ambivalent uh, uh, look at at uh, the season of Lent. Um, but we'll we'll discuss it charitably. Um, and then also just we wanted to talk a little bit about this situation in Ukraine. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that everyone who's listening has been following to some degree. I don't think you can um, be alive in the United States and not have some awareness of what's going on. It seems hopefully everyone's aware. And so I wanted to start, but wanted to maybe start with Ukraine actually and what's going on. And, and since everyone probably largely what's going on and we don't, we know it is not our job to offer a foreign policy analysis. Um, I guess I wanted to say like, in terms of like, you know, Robert, as someone who is in ministry and ministers to people, when you look at the situation in Ukraine and you consider the aggression of Russia uh, against them, the, the just tyrannical behavior, the threat of, of potential nuclear fallout, that's extreme. And um, the courage of the citizens and the leadership of president Zelensky, how would you minister and apply this maybe to people who are concerned, but also to like, as an opportunity to encourage believers um, whether talking about the church or just the general population of, of, of people in Ukraine. Yeah, you know, I think I would probably start here, which is, um, I, I think the reason why so many people have grown anxious over this event that for all intents and purposes is pretty localized uh, to the the area of Ukraine and the border of Russia. Um, why people in the West and in America feel anxious about that this event, um, I think, is because whether we acknowledge it or not, we've really lived in sort of a post-Cold War era of the Pax Americana. Um, And I think that all of us, to some extent, have been somewhat guilty of putting a lot of hope and faith and trust in that Pax Americana. And what I mean by that is saying world peace or let's just say a general disposition of uh, fraternity among nations of such disparate cultures and backgrounds is a 
historic anomaly. That is not actually the the history of the human race. The history of human race is strife and conflict, and that's because of that's because of sin. That's because of human sin. Um, when when uh, uh, America and the Soviet Union finished its Cold War, and America really came on uh, came on, on top uh, as the supreme world power in the West in the in the early '90s and, and moving on into the 2000s. Um, there was a sense that okay, we've sort of crossed that hurdle. Um, we are now living in this new age of of history and human advancement. I mean, um, I know that the, the the thesis is actually far more nuanced than this, but I remember, you know. Francis Fukuyama's, you know, it's the end of history, right? Um, and the reality is that human sin has not gone away. It's not, it's not been totally and completely and, and, and finally taken care of. And so um, when we see conflict in the world, we should humble ourselves and realize that this is where this is the, the, the problem of human sin has not yet been completely dealt with. Um, and so we need a better hope than the European Union or NATO or a strong military defense budget. We need a hope that's that's larger than all of those things. And that's Christ. Um, and that's kind of, I think, the first place that I would go. Yeah, I think that's right. I would say in terms of what you're talking about, uh, a wisdom tradition and the importance of wisdom and uh, ancient wisdom is... You, you get articles that are coming out saying, how did the West get Putin so wrong? Why did we make so many mistakes? And they have their answers, but so much of it was the Thomas Friedman line of no two nations that each have a McDonald's says that one has never invaded the other. And there's been so much stock in, um, you know, assured mutual destruction with the nuclear policy. There has been um, the economics of everything. There has been just kind of this, humanitarian rise of like, well, we all see each other. There are these kind of global norms and therefore we all share these things. So nothing like this could ever happen again for people who are in the West and are civilized. And and, and I think one thing that's interesting is that if we were to read like ancient wisdom or you were to read myths um, and you were to look at the bad rulers who are involved, uh, those authors were well aware of economic policy. They were well aware of trade routes and of interconnection and of why other countries may have wanted to invade. But what they focused on was, was the issue behind the invasion, which was a despotic ruler or greed or envy or the danger of avarice or laziness or these things. And so, you know, we the, these old fashioned ideas of of wickedness, of evil, of sin, of corruption, being the the main cause of these events is still very much true. But we we don't think about that. We don't we don't really put things in those categories. And these old fashioned ideas of sin and righteousness, which turns out to be a very good explanation for why a lot of things happen. That doesn't say that we should just completely reject the economic side or the geopolitical analysis at all. But to realize that there's no amount of economic policy uh, or geopolitical ally that that can stop um, or prevent a, an evil tyrant from from uh, pulverizing and bullying 
people. And so it's good for us as Christians to recognize that that's what scripture offers us is a recognition that there is evil in the human heart, that there's wickedness out there. And that's what we pray against. And we can see these other things that maybe defend against it. Um, but we, we recognize that the bigger problem there is a corruption, is a, is a brokenness, is a sin, is a rebellion in the world. And so to your point of, of like an analysis from a Christian realism or, or, or like a biblical perspective, that's what we, that's what we have to offer the world. Right. Yeah. Humans have not changed since, you know, the fall. And, um, yeah, as much as we want to, uh, try to gloss over our sin or manage it either by economics or politics or whatever we, we can't, that's, that's just the, the facts that we live in. And then that's when, you know, with that understanding, with that basis, uh, a Christian realist perspective can start to look at options that minimizes suffering um, and uh, takes account of uh, conditions of the human heart that uh, we await uh, to be resolved at glory. Um, I think also in, uh, in, in all of this, um, you know, we have to remember that, uh, that God sits that, God sits on the throne, that God is in control. Um, I saw a, a pretty, um, I'll say insane tweet uh, this weekend. I was actually at a birthday party, uh, which I have to do just a quick side story real quick. Uh, it, this Saturday or this past Saturday, James went to his first birthday party uh, and is at one of those trampoline parks and they had a uh, dodgeball. And uh, I went in because James wanted to go in, but there's just dodgeballs flying everywhere. So I had to protect him. You know, I had to be his guardian. So I went in there. Well, this, here's, this is going to connect to war a little bit. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. And so, especially against four-year-olds, Robert, exactly. that's totally so right. Little kids are hucking dodgeballs at my kid. I said, you know what? I have to deter these people. I have to, I have to carry a strong stick. So I just started wailing on these kids with dodgeballs. Um, and they left him alone for the most part. But anyway, I just had to turn this aside. So while it, that's it all only happening, takes one or two bloody noses to really send the <laughs> message. That's great. That's really great. No, the the best was their parents were watching this this onslaught happen. So I was one. I, none of them said anything to me afterwards, but I definitely thought. Well, of course they didn't. They were afraid you're going to hit them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyway, as this onslaught is happening, I was I was reading this tweet. That's why it stuck out to me. Um, but basically. The premise of the tweet was that uh, uh, to tweet something like God is in control or to tweet verses about that um, is to reveal a certain privilege, a certain uh, uh, American privilege that um, uh, is uh, stale or offensive to the Ukrainian people. And while I understand the sort of pastoral sentiment of that statement, I have to disagree with it vehemently because um, if we don't, when people are at the lowest point, when all hope is gone, that is the most appropriate time to remind people that God is sovereign and in control. I mean, that, that is our last hope. Um, And so if we can't say that to people for fear of being offensive, then I fear we have, we've, we've missed the point. We've, we've lost the narrative. We no longer, um, 
can make sense of this fallen world that that we live in, and especially to make sense of events like the Ukrainian and Russian war. Yeah. I mean, I saw the same thing and it was ludicrous. And one thing was encouraging is all the different factions on Twitter, all the Orthodox different factions joined together. And we're like, this is nuts. Uh, we may disagree with these, but everyone was in agreement. Like, nah, bro, this is the, uh, Christ being honest, God, God ruling in heaven is, is the right response. You know, that meme where there's, there's like the two hands, like coming yeah. together of this was so many people agreeing it was more like the orb do you remember that orb that donald trump held and like all the oh different world gosh. leaders yeah. it was more like that it was just everyone was like no he is in control yeah so. no and i would say that's um well in some ways that's to to not want to say that is dripping actually with more privilege therapeutic privilege because yeah. Uh, you, 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 um, people who are hurting don't, they, they want the therapy and not this theological truth of God's sovereignty. So I, yeah, that was a little bit silly to me. And, um, you know, I, I think about what we're seeing, not only with, uh, so this, the civilians, there's a lot of courage there. Um, uh, Zelensky has been just um, incredibly moving to me. Uh, I have just been so moved by his words and inspired by him and uh, challenged as well. Like uh, a mirror has kind of been held up and wondering, not even if I were president, would I do the same thing at all? But it's like, would I be willing to fight in the streets um, to stay with my people to have like an Alamo moment really uh, against this incredibly huge country that's smaller than Texas uh, is something you told me. And um, there, there's something about a king who is fighting in and amongst and with his people who at the same time rules over them. And uh, Henry V, the speech at, at Agincourt has been, uh, you know, he who sheds his blood with me this day shall be my brother. Uh, that line of solidarity that I think a lot of men our age and maybe even older, younger um, have been looking for someone who's willing to sacrifice and stand up for something um, and be there come what may is, is just, it's, it's beautiful. It's heroic. And it's, um, speaking of something ancient, I mean, it's the Kings of old that you read about and are inspired by. Yeah. You know, the, the word that I, that came to my mind was meek. Um, mm. uh, and you know, I think we have a, we have a completely warped idea of what meekness means. Um, so we assume, uh, you know, it, it means, weak, frail, um, kind of like a doormat. And that's not actually what the word means. Um, meekness is a, uh, uh, actually a sort of a willingness, a sort of terrible willingness to fight for the oppressed and the downtrodden. Um, it's not a self-interested sort of vindication, but it's a, it's a willingness to step up and vindicate those who have been wronged. Um, and I think, uh, that is what we see, uh, with leader, the leaders of Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky could have gotten out. I mean, he could have, um, retreated. He could have, uh, sort of gone into exile and, and been a leader from afar. Um, more, m multiple Western States would have approved that. I mean, I think it's from what I can tell with at least one story, this is the fog of war. So who knows how, how much of it's actually true or not, but you know, from what I can tell, the United States did offer him an out and he didn't take it. And 
um, his willingness to stay and and fight uh, with his people, um, I think is is noble. And I think the the word meekness came to mind. Mm. I mean, I I think for a lot of people, you know, the last you know let's say twenty years or so, maybe the last fifteen years, um, I think a lot of people have have sensed that uh, their political leaders, and this is not just in the United States, although I think it's here, I think it's a lot of places that, you know, their political leaders have not been willing to stand with um, the people uh, who feel sort of uh, oppressed, who feel as if they are being uh, mistreated and that injustices are being done against them. And I think they've seen their leaders often side with the powerful, um, the wealthy and uh, the corrupt. And I think uh, to see a leader that's, that stands uh, with his people, um, I think is, is quite amazing. And I think has <laughs> stirred in a lot of people saying, Hmm, I wish we had leaders like that. And so um, hopefully that's, that's a good sign of, of what's to come and, and the kind of leaders that um, uh, nation states will elect. So. Yeah. I mean, we could go on and on about this. And um, the last thing I want to say or talk about is the church that's over there. And there are two different sides of this. You have, gospel coalition article that that went out and got a lot of traction from a ukrainian pastor and it was it was beautiful to read the article because it was clear that he wrote in english uh, but it wasn't his first language and so i thought there was something very beautiful about him communicating to a people not his own about what he's doing um and he said the the line that people have said is a church that is not relevant in a crisis is not relevant in peace and so he's staying behind to care for people and uh Porter Harlow, who's been on the show, is a, is a friend of ours, a uh, great man, uh, was speaking to a pastor, part of MTW, who's over there. And Saturday night, he was prepping for a sermon. And if his church was still standing on Sunday morning, he was going to go preach to his congregation. I mean, it's just such faithfulness, just day in, day out faithfulness that um, we, we can exhibit, not just in ministry, but in whatever God has called you to, that kind of faithfulness. But then there's the other side of, there's a lot of church leaders who have left uh they've they've left with the um uh with with the refugees and that probably doesn't get as much attention um and you know while there's the concern for the safety of of our christian brothers and sisters who are in the country who are staying uh there's also a concern for people who are leaving of them maybe feeling shame or regret uh, of them being judged for having left um and you know, in one sense, there, there needs to be pastors who go with the, with the refugees who speak their language, who can care for them, who can be with them, um, who have a duty. Uh, if their whole congregation is leaving, they should probably leave. They don't, I'm not going to say they should or shouldn't. That's up to them to make that decision, actually. But there's just two different sides here. And um, I, my heart goes out to both of them because I, they're both facing something acutely that I've never had to face and, and probably won't ever. Um, but man, it has been uh, inspiring and just a real challenge of testing metal. Or like R.C. Sproul would say, put steel down your spine. Yeah. You know, hear stories like this. Yeah. I mean, what a testament to the way that God cares for his church, right? The way that he cares for his bride, that he's led uh, people to stay and care and care for the people there. Um, and then to also, he's led people to to leave with the refugees and care for them. So um yeah, it's just the way that the Lord works, that that he cares for his bride and he's going to sustain her and care for her and tend to her. And that's that's just a really comforting thing. And again, that goes back to, you know, 
in, in times of trouble like this, like our only hope has to be that God is sovereign and on the throne and caring for us. Um, if, if it's anything else than that, um, it's going to ultimately fail us and, and disappoint us. So, yeah. And I know a lot of Christians are praying and if we're wondering if our prayers are working out, I, I would tell you that, uh, our, our purpose of prayer is to get aligned with God's will and what particular prayers have been answered. I don't know, but it is probably worth considering uh, the amount of courage that has been displayed in Ukraine. Uh, the, the church's re- resolve, um, the amount of Russian tanks and vehicles that have run out of gas, uh, the, the confrontation between the Ukrainian people and Russian soldiers don't, don't just dismiss the role of prayer. Um, this isn't a sense of we should be proud of ourselves for how great we've been. We're not fighting this war, but um, you know, we can sometimes put ourselves in a position where even we're answered prayer, we can explain it away. Um, But we do understand that God is moving even in this situation and um, just a lot is happening and we'll definitely be watching more and more and um, uh, keeping tabs or or, or keeping an eye on things and praying. So um, it's on our hearts. Yeah. My three-year-old, uh, every time we turn on the news and he sees it, he asks if we can pray for the Ukrainians. Wow. So that every time that happens I, in my mind, I go, mm, sorry, Vlad, not going to happen. Like, sorry, you've got this three-year-old praying for the Ukrainians. It's over. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such, <laughs> a tender, I treat it. it's such a tender thing to think about a child praying. Cause, cause James knows that he can't go over there and do anything, but he knows that his parents have told him prayer is important. Yeah. Although he does, he saw the video of the tractor running off with the, the Russian tank and he thought that would be pretty cool to do. So I think he thinks he could go do that. He, <laughs> he kind of looked at his trucks and was like, hmm, I could rig something up. I think I could make this work. So. <laughs> well, good. Maybe you'll be an engineer. Maybe, maybe you got an engineer <laughs> on your hands there. Well, and you know, so in, in line here, um, we're going to pivot to Lent. And I think there's maybe something of a segue here where, um, you know, our, our sense of comfort and uh luxurious living and decadence has uh, a lot of people ross douthat is, is a big one who's written a whole book on this but a lot of commentary about the way that affects us in our interaction with the world and how we view things and our willingness to suffer and our willingness to put up with pain and our willingness to sacrifice even just in general and it makes us less willing i think uh and it uh there was that article that came out uh from npr on Saturday about five steps to coping with Ukraine. And it's like, we, we can't even make it three days without needing someone to tell us how to cope. Like it doesn't bode well for, for resolve for people. And I know that different people have different stories, but I'm saying um, as overall, uh, I, I feel like there needs to be we need to recognize maybe how we're being softened. And with that, I want to say in, in the terms of Lent, you know, people, uh, fast from a number of things from Lent. And it got me thinking that, you know, a lot of us for Lent, we sacrifice something like chocolate or we sacrifice something like alcohol or we sacrifice maybe coffee. And that's fine. That's good. We should give up on that. But it seems like the more we have, the less we're willing to sacrifice and the less we have, the more we're willing to sacrifice. Um, and it, it seems counterintuitive, but that that's kind of the way uh, maybe our hearts work. And um, anyway, so the that's a little maybe on a heavier note or observation. Um, but my, I guess my opening question is first, Robert, are you giving up anything for Lent? I'm not. I am. Uh, I'm embracing the history and the tradition of Zwingli, 
uh, who I don't know. Have you heard about the sausage controversy? I have. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of been my attitude this year. Uh, is, uh, Would you explain it though? Go explain the yeah. controversy. Yeah. So uh, Zwingli was obviously a, a reformer, Swiss reformer. And uh, uh, during uh, his life, uh, during the Reformation, uh, he challenged the, um, the Lenten observance uh, that was imposed by the church and the state on uh, the people. And uh, so one of the things that, you know, the, this, there was law that required people to fast uh, on certain religious days. Um, and uh, Zwingli saw this as another form of, uh, uh, well, Roman Catholicism, but really Phariseeism, um, and instead encouraged people to basically feast on sausages uh, instead of observing the uh, fast, the state fasting day. Uh, and so his, sometimes history just gives us great names and monikers. And so what we have is the, the, the historic sausage controversy. Uh, led by Zwingli and during the Reformation, uh, which I think is just a great, uh, just a great little tidbit of history. There's actually um, an article that um, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Brian Lee, uh, who is a pastor downtown at a Reformed church downtown. Uh, I guess he wrote an article about sort of like, hey, why you should give up Lent for Lent effectively is kind of like what the like the cute little title was. But the picture was just a bunch of sausages <laughs> frying in a pan. Nice. So I was like, oh, that's good. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not giving up anything for Lent. I don't, I don't, I don't observe Lent. Um, but I totally resonate with what you're saying about the, the people who do and sort of the, the trivial things uh, that are given up. Um, uh, and uh, it does, I think you're making a lot of good points about kind of, you know, is, is Lent about truly, um, uh, dying to the self and living unto Christ and, and conforming our wills to his, or is it about this sort of, is it a sort of social exercise where we kind of like to participate with the group? Yeah. Um, and so in, in sort of finding that little, like kind of thin solidarity, uh, we say, okay, what's the least sacrifice I can actually make on myself so that I can still participate in this thing, but not really do what it's supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, I, I don't want to poo-poo the people who are giving up chocolate or alcohol or coffee, because I'm, I'm giving up something that might be categorized as trivial, then I think that if it is done um, uh, for the right purposes, it can be meaningful if, it, if it's a way to prepare our hearts for, for Good Friday and for Easter. So I think we have, need to keep our, 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 our minds and remember the right reason for that. Uh, but I, there, there can also be definitely a social um, component to it as well. That, that can almost work maybe as something of an apologetic. I'm not sure. I'm sure it can serve multiple ways, but um, you and I probably disagree, I think a little bit on the value of Lent or on its potential for the church. And as we wind down, we don't want to get into it too much, too much into the Presbyterian weeds, but you know, if you're, if you grew up like the non-denom probably have a wide spectrum on how, how uh, Lent is treated. If you grew up Southern Baptist, probably no, no to Lent. You grew up old school, Scottish Presbyterian, if you celebrate Lent, you're probably crypto-Catholic. Uh, Anglicans uh, generally celebrate Lent. Uh, so there's like a wide array of people celebrating, not celebrating, a lot of different opinions and takes on that. And so I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of an explanation for why you think that is 
uh, and then and then whatever you however you say it, I might just maybe add a a, a positive potential for it uh, on my perspective. But you go ahead and yeah, I'll try not to be. I'm not trying to be. I'll try not to be so dour or cynical. Um, here's what I'll say. Uh, I think we'll uh, to answer your first question. I think a re- the reason why it's kind of coming back uh, in vogue and why you see a lot of people. Um, participating in Lent and other sort of religious holy days. Um, I think it's for two reasons. I think one, the internet and social media has made it easier for us to sort of identify with one another and create this like sort of veneer of solidarity. And so it's just easier to go on Twitter and see the people that you follow practicing Lent and be like, Oh, I'd really like to do that. And so, um, uh, and so you're kind of more attached to kind of like an online community than you are necessarily maybe your specific like faith tradition. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make that, I'm not trying to cast that in sort of moralistic good versus bad terms. I'm just saying, I think that's a reality that we have to grapple with and why this is coming back. Um, I think also just the fact that denominationalism um, as a whole uh, has basically since like the seventies for political and sociological reasons has kind of, and maybe for similar reasons, you know, with the internet has kind of fallen out of vogue Um, And so what a lot of people do is since they're not, they don't feel primarily first attached to their denomination, they sort of primarily feel attached to evangelicalism or maybe just Protestantism generally, they say, okay, in that case, then I can sort of grab bag and choose the sort of traditions and the sort of liturgical elements or the things that I like that other traditions do. And I'll kind of kind of conglomerate it all together into this thing. And then I'll put it under um, a sort of, church or denomination or umbrella that, that works. Um, you know, I, I'm not, obviously I'm not against, uh, uh, other faith traditions and what they do. Like, I don't, I don't think Anglicans or Lutherans are, you know, wicked or inherently bad because they practice and celebrate, um, religious holy days. Um, it's just not, you know, what I do as a Presbyterian. Um, I don't, I can, I can probably make an argument. I can make an argument scripturally and biblically about why I don't think I, I should do it. Um, but also my, our tradition has just not been about uh, religious holidays. We tend to leave that um, sort of somewhere uh, depending on different nuances um, in under the Christian Liberty. So on the one hand um, uh, I don't think uh, Presbyterians can argue uh, that, you know, well, First and foremost, we, what we definitely don't say is that the church can impose it on people. Um, so the church cannot impose a church calendar and, and, and tie it to obedience and tie it to uh, righteousness on Christians. We definitely disagree with that. That's what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. That's what we broke away from. Um, I also don't think it's wise for pastors to sort of, you know, during the Lenten season, start knocking on their congregants' doors and sort of being like, hey, do you practice Lent in your family? Do you practice it at your home? I also think that would be wrong. I think that's a violation of our Christian liberty. Um, and so that's 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 kind of why. I think really it's a question of um, denominationalism and the specific faith tradition that you come from. Um, and I'm always going to lean into people's, you know, you know, be be what you are. And you know, uh, be that for a reason and, uh, make it a good reason. And, um, if you disagree, fine, you know, Presbyterianism gives a lot of room for Christian Liberty. Um, but I think we should ask ourselves, you know, what is it that my tradition believes? What is it that my confession states? 
Um, and we should try to adhere to it as, as best we can, because that's, that's where the Lord has brought us. So that's kind of a very, I'll say charitable and sort of broad way of saying it. Yeah. You know, I, I know there's there, like I said, there's controversy. There are people who think it is undoubtedly wrong. Um, I'm not in that camp. There are people that say Christians must celebrate. I wouldn't put myself in that camp. I think that, um, if, if this is a way that Christians can remember that we are approaching a day that commemorates the, the, one of the most, the most glorious day in human history of Easter, um, and that is a good thing to do, but it needs to be in a way that is meditative on the cross that remembers Christ's sacrifice, that remembers that it was for you, that remembers that he redeemed the people for himself. Um, that is the purpose of this. It is to fall in love with Jesus. Uh, it is to be grateful, to have gratitude for his work on the cross uh, and looking towards the resurrection and the sacrifice to remember who we are, that we are but dust. Um, that, that is, that's the purpose that it needs to serve. And if, if we can do that without becoming self-righteous or pharisaical in it, then I think it can serve a good purpose. Um, but there's of course boundaries to that. And, uh, I think you're right to say, um, for, to do kind of a witch hunt, to find people going door to door is probably not a good, that is definitely not a good thing to do. And, um, so yeah, I think the last thing I'll say about it is that um, I just want to I just want to point out that uh, when I first started seminary, I was this kind of um, uh, I read a, a Truman article about it. And I think Truman's being probably a little bit, um, you know, ornery because he's he's trying to be polemical and 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 that stuff but he, he basically sort of describes a sort of consumeristic kind of evangelical who sort of just kind of picks and chooses the traditions he likes without really thinking about coherence or history or any kind of other context and that's exactly the kind of person i was when i first started seminary um and it was actually uh on this uh issue of of observance day of of holy days uh that i kind of really changed my thinking on a lot of things because what I saw was in myself was this sort of fever pitch to do all of this like church calendar stuff simultaneously while my Sabbath, like every week Lord's day worship was just slipping hmm. and not taking the, the primacy in my life that it, that it should. And um, I think that that's, I don't think that that's all that uncommon. I think I've seen sort of a relationship where people uh, get really jazzed about the church calendar. And then we also see just, you know, the amount of, you know, weekly worship uh, is really down in the event in evangelical churches. Um, uh, Youth sports leagues have done an absolute damage on our churches and the way that we celebrate with Sabbath. Um, And so I really grew convicted that before I could really, because of my own sin, before I could even get into a place where I could healthily do what you're talking about, like practice Lent, do all that kind of stuff. I really had to get my Sabbath. Right. Um, and that's been a process. That's been a real struggle. You know, one of the things I tried to do, uh, one of the things I tried to change was, you know, don't, don't leave Sunday as sort of the day to catch up on all my homework. That's not really what it's for. Um, and I have to admit that was really, really hard as a seminary student who also has two kids and a full-time job, but 
you know, do I believe in this stuff or not? And I think that that's kind of what I came to. So I'm still in the process where I'm trying to, you know, conform my heart to the will of the Lord when it comes to Sabbath and, and Lord's day worship. Um, and maybe someday I'll get to a point where I feel, you know, personally, okay to, to celebrate, you know, Lent or something like that. But until that, until I get this Sabbath stuff down, I'm going to kind of focus on that, um, until, until that day. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. That's the last thing I'll say on that. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a, a good place to end it. And just a reminder that God has given us one day in seven to remember and that he calls us to remind us of the covenant that he's made with us and to worship him uh, and to enter into his presence and quiet times are good. Devotionals are good, but uh, remember that when you, um, you, you, we bear witness to the Lord and the work he has done until he comes again by, by, in that service of taking the bread and wine of hearing the word preached. Um, Christian, if, if you're looking for hope in the world and wondering who's winning, uh, Sunday's coming. And on Sunday, we remember that Christ rose from the dead and defeated the forces of darkness. That is an objective, undoubtable, real um, evidence that Christ has risen uh, and Christ will come again. And that, that is hope right there. And that is whether um, you're here in America or in Ukraine, that is something that we have to share in and remember. And so let's, let's, uh, as we enter this, this season, as we approach Easter to be praying for our brothers and sisters and people around the world and for wise leaders. And so um, with that, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Robert at Artie Hassel. You can follow me at Stockfield Will. And uh, we will be back with you guys next week. Thank you.